today is dedicated for the protection of all of our soldiers, for the protection of all of our citizens, for the speedy and complete return of all of our hostages, and for the speedy and complete healing of all of our wounded. As well as today was sponsored by Harold Ullman in the memory of an officer which was killed on the first day of the battle. His name is Roy Ben Oritsuk. He was an officer in Nachal Brigade. Roy, and his last name is Roy Chippel. Chippel, yes. So it is in his honor that we are learning here today and as well as everything else that we mentioned. So the first part of the Gemara, right? Right away we start off today, when I said it's juicy, what I mean is, is that you could really pause at any part of today's Gemara and you could find, without exaggeration, oceans of information on each one of the lines. When it says, oh, like a person who's haughty gets this punishment, you could find, I know just from the Tanya and the Rambam, literally, you can't imagine how much has been written on just these lines that they just throw out there like this is the fact. And it's, it's very, very, very deep Gemara today. Okay? So we're going to start off first with our dear friend, Ben Azai. Okay? So what happened to Ben Azai? It says over here, I'm not going to necessarily read all the Gemara inside because we're trying to go in depth. Okay? So it says over here, Ben Azai didn't get married. Right? And then the question is, how did he know about marital relations if he's a Tamil Chacham? We know he wasn't having, you know, uh, non-marital intimacy. So the question is, how did he know about the relations? So it says, the third answer, he had Ruach HaKodesh. Some say he got married. What? No, no. So now we're going to get into this. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get into it. So what's the question over here is that why was he not married? Simple question. Everybody knows the first mitzvah in the Torah is Puravu. Ben Azai himself has poskined that Puravu is one of the most important mitzvahs, the intensity of the mitzvah in the Torah. And then he's not married. So the question is, why is Ben Azai not married? So over here, there's an unbelievable explanation that it's fascinating. No question about it. So Rashi, first of all, comes along and says, very simple. He says, he was not married. Why? Which means that Ben Azai was basically saying he had such a desire and a passion and a thirst for Torah. He said somebody else could get married and have children. The rest of the Jews could do it. I could do it. But no, but then it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than that. It gets pretty wild. It wasn't just that he was saying, because obviously you can't really say the first mitzvah in the Torah, Ben Azai is like somebody else is going to do it. You know, what kind of, uh, he's not a, you know, he's not a big egotistical man. Listen to what this says over here. It says over here in the footnote, in the blue art scroll, which brings fantastic footnotes. Want to see who is the source over here? It's from a few different Purushim, the Kovet Shurim. It's from the, okay. He says like this. He was a man that because he had such a desire in the Torah, it wasn't that he was, it was a decision. He was an onos which means he physically could not get married, which means he was so passionate and so into his Torah, he was not able to perform marital intimacy. He wasn't capable. Because it says that a person, in order to have intimacy, they need to be aroused. He was incapable because he was so passionate about the Torah, he couldn't think about anything else, and therefore he was incapable. It wasn't that it was a decision, which is very important because you could read it a way where it sounds like he's like, you know, I don't need to do it. Somebody else will do it because I'm too smart and I have better things to do. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I would have loved to have done it, but it's just my head and my heart and my 100%. I'm in the Torah, and that's all I can do. So it's a fascinating period over there right at the beginning. Is he human? What? Is he human? He is human, yes. <laughs> no, I, I, yes. I, I, I used to feel, you know, 
know, the greatest Jews of our time, Moshe Rabbeinu, Avram Avinu, they had no problem. So this guy has a problem. <laughs> this is not normal. Yes. Okay? I mean, and it's, it's we're unique. We're relying on him to tell us how to live our lives. Something doesn't uh, <laughs> uh, Listen, I hear you. He might have heard from the other side. This is this is the explanation over here what it says about Benazai. That's all I'm telling you. But it's interesting to tell you. Then it's one of the explanations says he was married for a minute, but then the question is why did he get divorced? No, but it doesn't get divorced. They got separated. Maybe that's the reason. No, because he couldn't perform. He couldn't. Maybe he couldn't concept. According to this explanation, he could not. He was not able to have intimacy. That was an issue that he had. Separated. So that is the first explanation. The rest of it, it is important to realize that if anything, when you say about uh, trusting his character to be able to teach us other things, you see a guy like Benazai, because of his personal situation, he didn't change the way he taught, which if anything shows you how great he was. It didn't, oh, he didn't say, oh, I have an issue in this area, and therefore everybody should go and learn Torah like me and should be you know, become an aesthetic, you know, being a monk or something like that. No. He said, Puruvu, he has Paskin clearly, Puruvu is one of the most important, strict, intense mitzvot in the entire Torah. But not for me. What? No, and he couldn't. He couldn't. Navarzov, he couldn't. So it's very important over here. It wasn't a decision. It says clearly he was an onus, <clears throat> which means he could not. It wasn't a choice. It was impossible. Yeah, then we continue. You can't eat matzot. It's the same thing. You cannot. If you cannot, you cannot. Yeah. Yeah. No, but over here, meaning I am explaining over here the purist. The purist does not say he had a physical impediment. The purist says he was a completely healthy man, that his complete mind, body, and soul were in the Torah to the point that nothing else had his attention or interest. Yeah. Okay. That's what it says. It doesn't say he had an impediment. I say, but the purist does not, the purist does not, I'm just saying clearly, just to be clear, for the Torah's sake. Yes. It does not say he was unwell. Yes. A hundred percent, but that's the thing. It doesn't say over here anywhere. It doesn't say over here anywhere he was unwell. That's so those are separate questions. Separate questions. I don't know. Separate questions. So he says like this. We'll get to that. He says like this. Then we continue along and say like this. Anybody who eats bread without washing their hands is as if. Right? I could read it inside the Gemara, but I want to go into the depth, and therefore I'm not going to focus so much on the text. He says like this, Anybody who does not wash their hands before eating bread is as if he had relations with a harlot. Right? Now over here we have to read the text, because you, the, the text is the whole question, is that he says that doesn't make any sense. And it's important to realize that the first explanation he doesn't go by. It's not an opinion. Rava himself is the one who says the first version. That is, if, if you didn't wash your hands, it's if you had relations with a harlot. And Rav himself realizes, the Gemara asks on him and says, that doesn't fit with the language of the verse. The way it's written, it would be backwards. You're, the way your version does not fit. So what is the answer? It says no. Anybody who has relations with a harlot, in the end, he's going to need to beg for bread. He's going to become poor. Kikar lechem. Yes, he's going to become poor. Now what's very interesting over here is that in the last piece of Gemara, we basically said that in a home... If there is, um, what do we call it, frivolity. If people are going around, the husband or wife are going around and flirting with other people or looking at other people's husbands or wives or whatever it is, then it destroys the home. What did we say over there? We said this is mainly talking about the woman. 
simply because on a very practical, physical level, if the woman is out doing other things, then she's not taking care of the house, and then the house falls apart, right? So over here, he says a whole different explanation the other way. He says that over here, we're talking about the man, that if the man is going to be going around with a harlot or a prostitute, then the house is going to be destroyed. Why? He brings the famous line that says that the parnasa, the sustenance of the house, the success of the home, comes from the woman. So when the man is going around and he's acting the way that he's acting, then he destroys his relationship with his wife, which in turn destroys his parnasa. which is interesting because very clearly, as much as we men like to think that we are the ones who make all the money and we are the ones that make all the success, and we are the ones that run the household in that aspect, the Torah says clearly, the woman is the path through which a man's sustenance comes, his parnasa comes. Yes, exactly. So over here, Torah says it very, very clearly. And he's saying that this is the spiritual aspect of it. So remember before we were saying that really only if a woman goes around, then it's a problem. Over here, he's saying that's a physical reality. Over here, this is a spiritual reality. That if the man is going around acting friv- from frivolously, then we say he's going to destroy his home. God's going to cut off the parnasa that's coming to him through his wife. And then he's going to be in big problems. Then we have another explanation that says anybody who doesn't wash their hands, he is nekar mina olam. He is uprooted from the world. Now over here, we have something which we haven't discussed in a long time, even though it's happened, but now I decided to focus on it today for this year. We have a machlokas between Rashi and Tosfos. Now you could explain this as not a machlokas. You could explain it as Tosfos is adding on to Rashi. I would think the pshat is that Tosfos is definitely arguing on Rashi especially from the way that he starts off. So Rashi comes along and says, what's the reason why? And it says, Nekram in Olam. He says, very simple. There's a klal, general rule, which by the way, we've spoken in this uh, kolal many times about the Rabbanin adding on different things. You can't go swimming because you're going to build a raft and the Rabbanin are... General rule, very simple. If you do not follow the laws of the Rabbanin, Chai of Misa, all of them, not one or the other, whatever, Chai of Misa, not the death penalty in this world, it's a spiritual death penalty. Which means that even though they're Rabbanim, they're making safeguards for the Torah. So you would think, oh, it's a safeguard. So really, if I break that, it's like I'm only past the safeguard. I still didn't actually break the Torah. Over here it says, no, no, no. If you pass the safeguard of the Rabbanim, spiritually, you are chayev, you're obligated in the death penalty. Okay? That's Rashi's opinion, very simple. Tosfos comes along and says, why, if it's a general rule, why do you need to tell me? The Gemara comes along and says specifically, Rab Zureka says in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, that specifically in this case of washing your hands, you get the death penalty. Why would the Gemara have to come and specify this case? I know washing your hands is a mitzvah der Abanon, so I'd already know you chayv misa for it. Why do I need to be told specifically in this case? It doesn't make sense, that's the answer. So what does he do? He brings along different explanations and different answers where it speaks about this case, where it says that instead you get punished with poverty. And what Tosfus does is he brings a beautiful and brilliant answer. As he says, they're not arguing with each other. They're complimenting each other. That says, somebody who consistently does not wash their hands, this is according to Tosfus, somebody who consistently does not wash their hands, so we're not talking about a one-off time that you're lazy or whatever it is, consistently does not wash their hands for bread, they will die through poverty, a slow death. A slow, consistent, painful, horrible death of poverty. Somebody who one-offs doesn't do it, they'll die a quick death. So it's not much better, but that's the difference. 
And then he says, the reason why it specifies over here the mitzvah of washing your hands is because the other mitzvahs, the Rabbana, that you say you have the death penalty, all of them are sudden deaths or unusual deaths. But they are not, you know, long drawn out deaths, like specifically by washing your hands, that there's a unique punishment for washing your hands for whatever reason. Okay. Yeah. Sweat of his brow. Yeah. What do you mean? I mean, there's something deeper to this whole thing about washing the dead. Like, are you saying why? Why is there specifically? Why are they using this as an example for for sudden terrible or death? Terrible death. No. So, so you have a very good question over here. Rashi and Tosfos are arguing on the fact that the Gemara brings it. You're saying, why does the Gemara? Why is there even yeah, any special rule for washing your hands? Yeah, why, no, why is this an example? I would imagine, I didn't see this, but I would imagine the reason is, is because when you wash your hands and you're eating bread, bread signifies essential sustenance, right? Meaning in general, all the foods we have, bread in the Torah signifies essential eating, bread and water. That's what you need to, to live. So when you're washing for bread... Before you're eating the bread, you're showing that your essential sustenance, you're showing that it's from Hashem. Right? That's the idea. What? I know, but for bread, there's an extra because it's the essential sustenance. For bread, you have to wash. You don't have to wash every time you eat a cookie or, or drink a cup of water or whatever. But if you eat bread, because that's a, it's considered like chashev, it has a certain importance to it, therefore you wash. So I would imagine, this is my baychzvara, right? This is my what I would think is that at that moment when you're eating your sustenance, it's very important that you show your appreciation and giving a bracha Hashem. I would imagine. That's a possible answer. Which is more important? What? Washing or saying the bracha? Amotzi. Washing or saying the bracha of Amotzi? In other words, for whatever reason... They're two different things. You're right, they're two different things. Which is more important? Like, I if would... I say the bracha of Amotzi and I didn't wash, I'm going to still have a slow death, is what you're saying. Even though I'm, I'm, I'm both... You know, <laughs> people get lazy, you know, they're, or they're on the road. Or I would imagine, I would think probably, what What do you think is more important? It's a hard, it's a hard question. I would think washing is more important. But I think they're both important. That's the truth. You don't want to get up and go wash, but you still, uh, you know, because you, you still say the bracha. Yeah. So that's it? I would imagine washing, but that's really off the top of my head. I don't know. Could be a bracha. I guess it's extenuating circumstances. It's difficult to, 
Well, this is spiritual. This is not physical court, so that's, that's up to him. I don't know if he still applies it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I would imagine there's not a reason why it wouldn't apply. Meaning, I, I, at the same time, I'd hope he's merciful, you know. <laughs> but I wouldn't imagine there's no reason why it would not apply. Meaning, why would it be today any different? It's the same bread that they had back then. The only thing is that today, we don't have the same mentality as them. That by them, a meal meant bread, pretty much. Like, that's why you look in halacha, you don't only wash. I don't want to drive everyone crazy, but this is a whole thing in itself. You don't only necessarily watch if it's bread. Like sometimes people will say, oh, it's hamotzi. The pizza is hamotzi. But if you have two or three slices, or like me, if you have seven slices, then you for sure have to wash because that's considered a meal. <laughs> what? Seven slices is so skinny. <laughs> Relatively. I'm getting there. <laughs> so I'm saying like if you have something that's considered a meal, I don't mean like eating a lot of apples. If it's mizonos, but you eat a lot of it and you're sitting down and making a meal, you also have to wash. The washing is the significance of a meal is happening now. So really by them, probably every time they had a meal, they washed. Because that was the idea. It was a meal, you sit down, you wash. That was their, you know. So by us, it sort of became like, you know, there's a whole system. What's hawamotzi? What's mizonos? So it was made from fruit juice and all this different stuff that's going on. But I would imagine that it still does apply. Although being a background uh, Chabadnik, we don't focus so much on punishments. But this is a pretty severe punishment. Yes. He says like this. When you wash your hands, which this is just a practical thing to explain, which a lot of people do not know, and it's very simple because you don't have to do anything different if you're washing. When you wash your hands, mime rishonim, which means before the meal, the tilas yadayim, you lift your hands up like a surgeon. If you ever saw a surgeon before they went to surgery, they have their hands like this, you lift your hands up like this. Why? Very simple. Because when you wash your hands, you're washing your hands to purify your hands, right? Water is a receptacle of impurity. So when the first, why do you wash twice? Chabad actually washes three times. I have no idea why. I think it's Kabbalistic. But why do you wash twice? Is because the first time you wash, the water that hit your hands becomes impure because it hit your impure hands. The second time you wash, it's purifying that first impure water. Now the problem is you don't want the water to go down your arm and then back up your arm because then it went to part of your body which is impure and now it goes back to your hand and impures it again. So you don't want that water to go back down your arm and up your arm. So you go like this. And then you dry your hands. That's it. That's the simple way that you're meant to wash and dry your hands on Shabbat. When it comes to my Machronim, you put your hands down. Why? Because it's a totally different reason. The idea of washing my Machronim is because it says the salt of Sodom, which really could be any salt, where it's saying that your hands got salt on them from the meal, and then you might rub your eyes. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you sat by a meal and a guy said he's going to give a short Tvar Torah and then he went on for 45 minutes and you're stuck there. And you can't go anywhere and you're just stuck at the meal and whatever. And now you rub your eyes and boom, you blind yourself. So the idea is, is that you want to wash your hands so that you don't have salt on your hands. It also gives a different reason. Um, yes. What? What are you saying? The salt of Sodom. You're saying specifically the salt of Sodom. Yes. Okay. Okay. So specifically the salt of Sodom. Then he brings a different reason. When hands are the salt of is very caustic, very sharp. When hands are you're either free, your hands are very free, and you might end up taking the hands which I touched the nostril and put on the eye, and then it's going to burn the eye. But the question is today, we don't know which but is the salt of Sodom. We, we know that the Mount Stone of Sodom does not exist. Okay? 
even people say by the Yama Melech where the she. <laughs> but, but, but this is that you have today on the table of salt. Yeah. Okay. Nice. That is the salt that was used to preserve meats, the, the food. Okay. So that's what that's why they were concerned that when you're eating the meat, it has no stone in it. Today, that's not the case. Okay. But specifically, Melech Stone, that's saying salt. Yeah. There is a whole Kabbalistic reason, meaning there is a whole way that you do Kabbalistically on the tips of your fingers, and then you put it on your mouth. It's a whole, there is a whole Kabbalistic side to it, but this is talking about purely. The halacha practical side of it. Oh, so he speaks about it. He speaks about it exactly because he's saying there's no melech sedom anymore. And the second reason that he brings is because you don't want to bench with dirty hands. And the question is, which opinion do you go by? Yes. It is. No, so that's why some people do. That's why many people do do it because they say even if it changed, we stay so with it. With it. So, so mental, mental, mental. Not a minhag. It's a halacha that the, the physical reality is not the same anymore. Yeah. But this is the same. Yeah, but it's not. By the way, if you think about it, if I'm not mistaken, I think Spartan have a more. Yes, unless you had wings. Unless you had a Shabbos meal, it was a little unique, or someone brought out barbecue wings. Your hands are super dirty. Yeah. No, no. So that's what I'm saying is that over here, what their Ma'amachronim was probably cleaning their hands. Our Ma'amachronim today, from what I've seen, if I'm not mistaken, is very Kabbalistic. It's very, you do it in a certain way. It has a certain, the fingertips, or more of a ritual to it. Exactly. Assuming that you do it. Yes. I personally, to truth is, as Chatayani Masker, I definitely have the custom to do it, and I always forget to do it. I need to, re- I need to work on the Mayim Achronim. This was good that I learned this. What? <laughs> no, I need to buy one of those, and then it will remind me. Buy one of those uh, silver ones where you, and then you don't forget, because then you want to put it out, and it's, oh, look, he's got it there. Yeah, it's nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Yes, I guess so. I don't know. That's, that's way above my pay grade. That's, uh, <laughs> that's possible. Okay, so we're going to end off with this part and then we're going to move on to the next subject. He says like this, anybody who does not wash, or anybody who doesn't dry their hands after eating bread, it's as if he had impure bread. Over here he brings a very simple, pashit explanation of why that is the reality. Is because it's something which the Gemara says is disgusting. You don't want to take wet hands and put it on the bread and, and, and make the bread all wet. It's just disgusting. It's not deep. It's not spiritual. Any time, which is very interesting. The Torah 
is aware of human reality. Anytime you do something disgusting, the Torah considers it tummy. Just a very interesting idea over here. Anything which is considered gross by humans generally is tummy. Even if it's not from a dead person or whatever it is, specifically spiritual, just the physical reality, the Torah says, that's gross, that's tummy. So over here he says, if you don't dry your hands before touching the bread, it's gross, it's tummy. I don't think it's so gross. So, you know, but uh, the Torah says yes. Ah, Ruby, you want to say? Tell everyone. No, no, no. I'm asking the last. No, you should say it because it was from say it. Washing, you're talking about washing now. Yeah. So what happens is there's a custom that when the people wash their hands, they raise the hands like the Quran says, and they say, which we all know is taken from Yom Kippur, Islamic as the base. Okay? You don't believe me, you can take a You don't know. It's hard to meet wet matzah? What do you mean? You say wet matzah, you don't mean like from washing hands, you mean from like dipping it in dips, sir? They will wrap the matzah in a wet towel. Really? Really? What, to soften the matzah? Wow, I never heard that before. But there's nothing with matzah with the liquid. That's how that happens, right? Yes, okay, so we're going to end off with this point over here because it's a fantastic point. Maybe we'll continue off from this point again next week because it's very deep. I don't want to rush through it, but I want to mention it in this year. Oh, no, Ruby is going to do next week, yes. Ruby's going to do it. I'm actually, by the way... Be kind, be kind, please. Yes, wait a second. I want to actually tell you what the plan is, and I was supposed to fly in for the Kinos HaShulchim, right? Now, because of the situation here... I realize it's not responsible to go, so I'm not going to be going. Oh, so but Ruby, no, but Ruby is going to the call next week because I asked him, and therefore he's still going to do it because I'm sure he has a plan, and I'm not going to oh, stop it, and I'm very excited to see that happen. I'm going to come. I'm going to come. I'm going to come. I'm going to be here. I'm going to come. I'm going to be here, but I will not be flying in the end. I was supposed to fly in. I was supposed to fly in this week on Wednesday. It was going to be my first time going to the conference. You could see me in the picture. But actually, you should know, the shluchim, the, the, the rabbis of Eretz Yisrael, sent out a message that nobody, meaning generally speaking, Chabad is very into flying into this conference. Meaning the Rebbe basically said, if I'm going to send you to Uganda, you got to come back once, once a year or else you're going to lose your mind. You're going to go crazy. So it's very important for everyone to fly in. That's why a lot of shluchim, even if they don't have the... <laughs> exactly. But it was ve- it's a very big thing to fly in. So this year, which is very rare, I'm just telling you guys because you brought it up, this year, very rare, they sent out a message from, for the Chabad of Israel and said that you should not fly in this year, which I'm telling you, this happens almost never. Probably if there's a war, probably Ukraine might have said the same thing during this time because they said if you're going to leave, generally speaking, all the rabbis are rabbis of communities. You're going to leave. Everyone's going to look at you leaving. A whole bunch of rabbis leaving Israel during the war. It looks terrible. It's not a time to leave. And then secondly, they also wrote, which I think is, I don't know if it should be first or second, your families will probably be nervous, especially me. I have two babies. 
it's not a smart time to leave. You know, God forbid, if a flight gets canceled, I get stuck out, it's not a good idea. You know, then you guys will have to babysit. It'll be a whole thing. It'll be crazy. <laughs> so, yes. So, we're not going in the end. But I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here to listen and to, and to learn. So, you better be ready. <laughs> okay. So, he says over here. I'm just going to skip the first part because we're going to go back to this next week. But I want to just end off with this part. He says, anybody who has gasus haruach, anybody who's haughty, who's egotistical... It is as if he serves Avodah Zarah. So over here is one of the most foundational teachings I've ever learned in my entire <clears throat> journey of being Jewish. Is that ego is not just the source of, you know, for example, like in Chabad, you have the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe. He has an entire section of Maimorim, of Hasidic discourses, where he explains that ego is the source of all of your problems. And he explains it rationally. That the oh. The fact that you have a bad day, why do you have a bad day? Because you in your mind think to yourself, who am I that something bad is going to happen to me? Like, how could this happen to me? That It comes from, and then you don't like someone, and somebody rubs you the wrong way. It comes from a place where maybe you feel he threatens your existence, maybe you feel you're in competition with each other, and ego is the source of many issues. On a separate note, in your relationship with Hashem, ego is basically saying, I am responsible for my success. And that is literally the equivalent of serving of Odezara. Why? Because if you say to yourself, I'm responsible for my success, then you're saying that there's not somebody who's orchestrating this entire world, who's making everything happen, who's creating everything from nothingness into somethingness constantly, every single instant. And you're saying it's because I, you know, Joe Schmo, I'm a smart guy. I'm good. What? It's completely the antithesis of God. It's not just a side note. So it's something which is a little bit hard to understand because everybody has an ego. Everybody should have a healthy self-esteem. It's not something which we say is like, you know, you should have a healthy self-esteem. shouldn't be like somebody who's like a doormat who gets trampled on by everyone. But at the same time, the idea is, is that your ego should not allow you to come to a place. Your ego should not allow you to come to a place where you believe that you are the source of your success. So on a very practical note, ego is anti-God. How do we work on it? It's not that you're ever going to shut down your ego. It's impossible. But just to keep in mind, even if you feel, okay, you're so great, say what Moshe Rabbeinu said, the best, best uh, direction is that, yes, I am amazing. Yes, I am fantastic. And I am God's gift to the, the human race. But I'm God's gift, which means it's from Hashem. So that's the key and the idea. Still you have stories, but still you have your own free choice. And what you said, I understand that you leave books. Uh, free- <laughs>